0: All right, today's really going to be different because you don't see uh, a good-looking guy up here like Harry or Nate or Mark, and I'm going to be using a PowerPoint presentation to take you through Psalm 57. And as we begin, I want you to think about your top five psalms. At least for me, the top five psalms would be Psalm 23, where we talk about the Lord being our shepherd, or Psalm 51, the prayer of a contrite sinner, or looking at Psalm 100, one that I try and recite on Sunday mornings as I come to church about the praise and the worship of God, or even Psalm 139, looking at God the Omnipotent and the Omnipresent One, or even Psalm 119, which talks and tells us about God's Word and extolling it. You know, as interesting as I thought about my top five, I thought, where are the top fives in the heart of the people in the church in the United States? And it was interesting to see that only two of mine were in the top five. Psalm 23 was number one. Psalm 91 was number two. Psalm uh, 139 was number three. Psalm 27 was number four. And Psalm 121 was number five. Now, we heard Psalm 91 recited this morning as we were worshiping and singing. But I would say that probably only one or two of those psalms are on your top five list, just like it was for me. But when you think of Psalm 57, which is the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, where does that rank in your list of all-time favorites? I know it's in my top 150, and if you know anything about the uh, book of Psalms, there's only 150 psalms that are there. But I hadn't put Psalm 57 up at the top of the list or near the front of the list until this last year or year and a half. Now let me tell you the background for why I've chosen Psalm 57. My ministry is among... Uh, Slavic people around the world. It's primarily over in Europe. It's working not only in Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe among the expatriates who have uh, settled into life in a Western society. And you know, there was a little incident that happened about a year and a half ago. Uh, There was a country that uh, invaded another country, a bigger country, Russia, that went into a smaller country, Ukraine, and was very interested in taking over that country. They thought it was going to be a two or three day process. And here we are 18 months later, and we're still at war, and the big guy is starting to lose. He's starting to get reduced in size. But you can imagine about a year ago the anxiety that must have been in the hearts of those Slavic people who were in Ukraine, and even more than that, in the hearts of the people in the countries that were surrounding. The people that I work with overseas, and we support a few men over in that part of the world, but we have men in Moldova, and they had a influx of Ukrainians that came trying to flee the war. And as they were dealing with the Ukrainians, they began to look at themselves, and they said, we're Moldova. We're next on the list. If they take Ukraine, the next place they're going to come in is going to be Moldova. So all of the Moldovans were afraid of what was happening. Not only that, in Lithuania, there is another small country that Russia would be very interested in overtaking, and so my contacts in Lithuania were saying, you know what, we're we're kind of afraid that once Ukraine falls and if Moldova goes, we're going to be next on the list after that. And then I have some friends and uh, some ministers in Romania that I'm dealing with, and they're right next to Moldova, and so they're thinking, you know what, we were used to be a part of that Soviet empire, and we could fall to them just as easily as Moldova and uh, Lithuania. And so there's high anxiety in the hearts of those who are, In that part of the world. Now, you may not think that there's any relationship to what's going on in Psalm 57 and what you see going on in the world today, but there is a very important uh, connection in there, and we're going to see that in the introduction. You would think that I'm going to spend most of my time looking at Psalm 57, but in order to understand Psalm 57, we really need to understand the setting of Psalm 57. And to do that, we have to go outside of the book of Psalms. And we have to go back into uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Now this is where, let's see if my PowerPoint presentation is working. Yes, here we go. So in order to do that, let's understand the background of Psalm 57. And if we're going to do that, we need to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And when we look at chapter 21, beginning in verse 10, going all the way into chapter 22, verse 8, we're going to see the setting for uh, what's going on in Psalm 57. Now, why am I going back to this, this, this uh, uh, portion of the Old Testament? Why am I going back into 1 Samuel? Well, if you look at Psalm 57, and if you look at the superscript at the very beginning, it says this is a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. All right. Now, when you look at Old Testament history and you find out when did David flee to a cave, there are two possibilities that are there one is this cave that we're going to be identified this morning that's called Adullam. and then a few chapters after chapter 22 there's going to be another cave that David is going to flee to and it's going to be in Gedi. and you have to choose which one it's uh, is going to be the setting is it going to be in Adullam, or is it going to be in Engedi when you look at the commentators they say well look at there's a historical relationship then between Psalm 57 and Psalm 56 and if you go back to Psalm 56 you see that he's fleeing from, uh, from Saul and he lands in a place called Gath with Achish, the king of Gath. So when you go back into 1 Samuel, you find that, well, there's one, ca- there's one cave that's associated with Achish and that's a cave called Adullam and you find that in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And so we're going to be focusing on the background of Psalm 57 from 1 Samuel twenty one, twenty two. Now, you have to put this in a bigger picture, too, because when we look at where 1 Samuel is, when we see uh, chapter 21, it's in a section, when you look at uh, 1 Samuel, that's between 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 31. Now, what's going on in those chapters? Well, if you know what's going on in chapters 1 through 14, you see Saul rising to power in Israel. But then he has a little uh, shortcoming, Uh, One that cost him the kingship, and God is going to anoint David, uh, and he's going to be the next king sometime in the future. And what we see in chapter 15 all the way to chapter 31 is the demise of Saul in his kingship and the rise of David in his uh, uh, ascension to the power. But the other thing that we need to see, and I think it's important before we start looking at 1 Samuel, is to look at David's timeline and to look at the period of time in which we find ourselves. Because David's rule, according to uh, the historians, uh, is somewhere between, well, he was born in 1040 B.C., and he's going to go to be in the presence of the Lord in 970 B.C. He had a 40-year reign and a 70-year life. And so where is David in 1 Samuel 21 in chronology in relationship to this historical timeline? All we need to do is uh, look at... um, how old he was uh, when he died and when he, uh, uh, when he began his reign and subtract 40 years. And so we see he begins his reign around age 30. And age 30, uh, if the chronology is correct, and if what I have uh, understanding, it's around 1010 B.C. Now, when did he become anointed as the king uh, in First Samuel uh, to be the next king in place of Saul? Well, we've got to take a a guess in there because they think that he was somewhere between 13 and 17 years of age. I've settled on 15 as the magic number. There's no good special reason why I think that is the most accurate date. But if we look at the chronology of David's life beginning in 1040, then around 1025 as a 15-year-old, he's going to be anointed the king of Israel. Now, when is he going to be made king? It's going to be in 1010 B.C., And so we're looking at about 15 years later. So a 15-year-old, he hears that he is going to be the next king of Israel. God speaks to him, anoints him. He knows it's coming, but he's not king yet. And now when is he going to fight Goliath? Because it's important for us to see a little bit of the chronology that's going on. And again, we're making some guesses, but when you look at Numbers 1-3, you find out that if you're going to be in the army of Israel, you have to be 20 years old. Now, was David in the army of Israel when he fought Goliath? No, he wasn't. So we're going to guess that maybe he was 19. He was just short of the age. He could have been 18. He could have been 17. But I'm going to pick 19, okay? It's kind of arbitrary, but you're free to choose a younger age if you want. But he's one year before he should be in the army. And so here is a 19-year-old going up against Goliath, and it's around 1021 B.C., Now he's going to go back, and he's going to begin to rise and ascend in power. He's going to be in the court of Saul. And Saul is going to uh, do good things with him, and he's going to have a good relationship. He's going to marry into the family. He's going to marry one of the daughters of Saul, Michael. And they're going to have a short relationship together, and then David's going to go on the run. And when we look at 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run. He is leaving uh, his home with Michael in the presence of the king, and he's going to be living on the Lamb for the next several years. We think that he was probably around 24 at the time Psalm 57 is written, and the events of 1 Samuel 21 and 22 are taking place. But I want that age to sink in. I'm looking at myself. I've got a few years. Uh, I'm not 24 anymore. I feel 24 on the inside. But when I get up in the morning and I try and move around, I know I'm not 24. But here is David at 24. He knows he's going to be the king, but he's fleeing from the king. He is going to be the next king, but the present king wants to kill him. And he's been given the promise to be a king, but he's not seeing the uh, manifestation of that in his own life. He is a little bit in turmoil, a little bit confused at this time. But I want to take you through what's going on in 1 Samuel 21, and we're going to begin by looking at verse 10, and we're going to look at 10 and 15 just to help get the the picture of what David is experiencing as he goes into Psalm 57. It begins by saying, David arose in verse 10, and he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. Now there's a couple of things we need to notice in here. He's fleeing from one enemy, and he's fleeing into the presence of another enemy. How do we know that Achish is an enemy of David? Well, let's think back on David versus Goliath. Where did Goliath come from? He came from the city of Gath. Where is he fleeing to? He's fleeing to Gath. Who's the king of Gath? Achish. Achish is not a friend. Achish is an enemy just as much as Saul is an enemy right now. I can't understand the mind of David at this point when he is fleeing from one enemy and going into the presence of another another enemy. But he feels like he's kind of safe to be in Gath. At least he's not in Israel and he's not in the hands of Saul. And Saul can't get to him. But he's still in a very tenuous situation. But he feels bold enough to go into Gath and to make His presence known. And what's even more interesting to me, if you just back up into uh, the earlier verses of chapter 21, He makes a little stop on the way from Gibeah into Gath, and He stops at a place called Nob, and in Nob, He picks up an important instrument. He picks up the sword of Goliath. When He walks into Gath, He's carrying the sword of Goliath. That was like a name tag, don't you think? I mean, if Goliath comes from Gath, And Goliath is your hero, and he was the hero of not only Gath, but all the Philistines. And he goes out to battle, and everybody's quaking in fear because we see in 1 Samuel that when Goliath went up against the nation of Israel, nobody wanted to fight him, not even Saul. It was this little 15-year-old punk kid, David, who goes out there with a slingshot and takes care of Goliath. And the next thing you know, David's using Goliath's sword to cut off his head to demonstrate his superiority, the superiority of Yahweh, over the gods of the Philistines. And now that sword has been just hanging around in Nob all these years, a few years after, five, six years after the time of Goliath's slaying. But now Goliath, Goliath's sword is going to be a part of the equipment that David uses to go in to Gath. It was like a name tag. Here is David announcing his arrival. He didn't have to say, I'm David. All he had to do was let people see the sword, and they knew who he was. And so now the report is going to go to uh, the servants of Achish in verse 11. The servants of Achish then go to him, and they said, Is this not David, the king of the land? And we've got to stop right there. Is David king of the land at this point? Not at all. He's anointed to be the next king, but we're still years away from him being the king of Israel. And so he's already got this identity and it says, did not, uh, did they not see, sing as this one, as they dance saying, Saul is slain as thousands and David his 10,000s. Here's this little 24 year old who has got a reputation in front of the Philistines. He's got a reputation, not only among the Israelites, but he's got them among the Philistines as well. And then we go on into, uh. Uh, verse 11 as we see and and we're going to see that he is considered a spy by the Philistines. So that's going to prompt David to assess the situation and it says David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish the king of Gath. I, I think you would be a little afraid too if you were a 24 year old who was all alone. You don't have an army you don't have any supporters that are with you at this point You're going into an enemy stronghold and you think, well, I'll just kind of blend in. It's kind of hard to blend in when you're carrying the trophy of Gath, the sword of Goliath around. And people are seeing this and they're identifying who you are. And so now he's got to go to another plan. And so he's going to take matters into his own hands in verse 13. He's going to disguise his sanity before them, and he's going to act insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate, and he let his saliva run down into his beard. Boy, that's not a pretty picture of David, is it? I mean, I've had three beards in my life, and if there was a little bit of food, it was uncomfortable to have that in my beard. I can't imagine having saliva dribble down into that beard uh, and uh, uh, feign this kind of madness. But he's scratching on the door. He's looking at any way to get the focus of Akish onto getting, letting him get out of town. And it says then in verse uh, 14, Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man behaving as a madman. Why did you bring him to me? He says, Do I lack madmen? In verse 15, that you have brought this one to act, the madman in my presence. Shall this one come into my house? So this is going to be the perfect uh, way for David to get out of town. I'm surprised that Achish didn't just kill him on the spot. But he was able, feigning madness, to fool Achish to letting him get out of town. And so now he's all alone again, and he's leaving. But look at the situation that we have so far. Here is David fleeing a situation where he is afraid to stay in the presence of Saul. And he thinks he's going to a place where he can be safe, and he gets down there into Gath, and he finds out, no, there's no safety here either. And so now he's got double fear, and he's got to leave again. He is alone, and he's fearful, and he's getting out of the way. You know, it's kind of interesting when you keep going on in First Samuel that later on, David and Achish are going to be good friends, because David is going to become part of the Philistine army, and Achish is going to want him to be a part of The fighting against Israel. And so it's kind of interesting to me years later, about four years later, that there's going to be this transformation that takes place where Achish says, oh, you weren't mad after all. You're pretty uh, uh, much an asset for me. Uh, Why don't you be a part of my army? But that's in the future. For right now, there's just great fear in the part of David as he's trying to deal with these Philistines. So he's going to depart. And it takes up in uh, chapter 22 and verse 1. David departs from there and he escapes into the cave of Adullam. Now, this is our setting. If Psalm 57 is related to the cave that David is going to be in and the cave is Adullam, then now we're getting a little more of the picture. And remember, he's all by himself right now. I don't know about you, but for years I thought in my own mind that David, when he's fleeing Saul, has an army. He's got some men that are with him. There's no indication that there's any of these uh, multitude of men that are there with him at the time. He's all by himself, all by himself leaving Gibeah for Gath, all by himself in Gath, and then leaving Gath to go to the cave of Adullam. And there he is all by himself alone. And then I don't know how the word got out, but at the end of verse 1, it says, And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down to meet with him. Well, I can only imagine what's going on at this point. I don't know how the word got out to the family of David. You're going to see in just a minute how close the cave of Adullam is to Bethlehem where David was living. But you have some kind of word going back to the family and you know they know that they're not safe either in the hands of Saul because if Saul hates David then he's going to hate the family of David as well. So all the brothers, all the family, they come down here into the Adullam area and they're gathering around him. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, if you just go back to the meeting of David with his brothers when he was before Goliath and trying to, on the verge of fighting him, he would receive nothing but criticism from those older brothers. Why are you here, you punk little kid, brother? You think you could do anything in this situation? If Saul can't do anything about that, what makes you think you can do something? And they were mocking him even in that situation before he went out to battle. Now here he is again, and now he's on the run, and the family of Saul hates the family of David. And I think the family, and I'm just speculating at this point, is saying, David, you got us into this trouble. What are you going to do to get us out of it? That's a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of a 24-year-old kid, don't you think? The youngest in the family. And now he's being blamed for the family's troubles of having to live on the lamb, and now David's got to try and take care of him. Remember in the back of his mind, I've been anointed king, but I'm not the king yet. But then it goes on in verse 2. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, that is David, and he became captain over them. Not only has David's family come down at this point... But now you've got a bunch of malcontents. How many of them are there? Well, it says at the very end of verse 2, there's about 400 men that are coming to Him. Wow, that's a small army. Let's think about that in just terms of the numbers that are going on. How many are people are in, or how many men are in the army of Israel at this time? Tens of thousands, probably even hundreds of thousands. And they are there, and they if just at the command of Saul, they could go after David and all by himself, he's not very formidable, but even with 400 men, he's not very formidable at this point. Well, let's think about the Philistines for a minute too, because what if the Philistines wanted to come against David? Well, you got tens of thousands, if not 100,000 that could come over from there. So he's not feeling very comfortable with 400 men, especially those who are discontent, they're malcontents. These are people who are not fitting into Israel, and they're coming to David, and you would think, oh, they're going to be on his side. Well, Psalm 57 is going to help us to see that, no, not necessarily. They weren't necessarily on his side. And if you skip ahead a few chapters, as they go later on uh, after this incident in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 you're going to find that they are going to be living down in Ziklag and there's going to be 600 of these men now. 200 more men come and join them at that time to become part of his little army and they are going to turn against David because Ziklag is raided by uh, some Egyptians and they come after and they take all the families of these men and these men, when they find out what has happened later on in the future, they're mad at David. He gets all the blame. Isn't it kind of interesting that the picture is David is getting blamed for the troubles of everybody else. And David is looking at himself and he's going, what's going on? I'm supposed to be king. I'm going to be king at some point in the future. And yet there's no security in this at all. And then it goes on and it says in verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. So here we see David on the run again. He's leaving Gibeah for Gath. Can't settle in there, the Enemies there, so he goes to Adullam, goes to Adullam, he gets his family, and he gets all the malcontents, and he goes, you know, it's not safe here either, and so he goes off to Moab. Now, why did he go to Moab? Well, what do you know about David's family? Great-grandmother is going to be a Moabite. So he thinks, okay, well, maybe I can get my family, and I can take them down into Moab, leave them there, and we can all live down there peacefully and insecurity. And so David goes to Mitzbah of Moab and he says to the king in verse 3, please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do with me. And he left them there with the king of Moab and he stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. See, David is going to settle into Moab at this point and he thinks he's going to be safe and he thinks that he can protect himself. And I think it's kind of interesting to just look back at Four verses in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. You've got to remember that Proverbs is not written by David. It's written by Solomon. But who is Solomon? The son of David. And so he's learning his wisdom from his father. And what does it say in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? These are verses that I memorized a long time ago. I didn't worry about 7 and 8 until recently, but I looked at trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He's going to make your path straight. Do you think David is following this advice that Solomon has written down? At this point, I'd say no. I'd say that he's more following verses 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Is David experiencing refreshment to his bones at this point? Not at all. He's on edge. He's trying to figure out, where am I supposed to land? And he's landed in Moab, and he says, you know, I've already tried Gath, and that didn't work. I tried to and that didn't work. Now I'm going down to Moab. I think that's going to work. And he's settling in, except there's an interesting little provision in here in verse 5. All we have to do is look down, and it says, the prophet of Gad, the prophet of Gad. Well, you're going to see Gad a number of times in the life of David. But this is a personal counselor, a personal spokesman from God in David's life. And I don't know if Gad went with David from Adullam into Moab. I just know that when he's in Moab, Gad shows up, directed by God, to come and bring a message to David. What is the message that Gad has for David? Verse 5, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. And so David departed and he went into the forest of Harath. David's on the move again. He thinks he's going to be secure in Moab, but God says, no, I don't think so. I want you out of there. And he finds himself going into the forest of Harath. Well, where is Harath? Well, we're going to find that out in just a minute. But if you keep going on in verses 6 through 8, now that he's moved back into the forest of Harath, guess what? Saul's on the move. Saul has raised the army, and now he's coming after David. David with his 400 men and Saul with his tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. David is super fearful. Now we've got to stop for just a moment because I haven't painted the picture well enough in your minds for you to understand the situation. So I've got a little map for you that I'd like to take you through just to help you to appreciate the setting of Psalm 57. Because David has not been secure and he's not going to be secure. And that's going to play an important point in understanding Psalm 57. So we got to start in a place called Gibeah. This is the capital of Saul. Where is Gibeah? Well, now follow the red arrows as they come up. Here it is at the very top. This is Saul's capital when he is the king of Israel. Where is Gath? Well, it's over here in the land of Philistia. So he's going to make a journey. And when you make that journey, it's about 20 miles. Now, I've got to try and help you see a little perspective, and so I Googled how far it was from my house to my daughter's house. She lives up in Canyon Country. It's 20 miles, but you can't reference that. My daughter can. She knows the 20-mile distance. The 20 miles from Gibeah to Gath, that seems like a short distance. Hey, I can put that into perspective trying to drive up to my daughter's home, but you can't relate to that. So I did another Google search. If you start here at the church... And you go up to Six Flags Magic Mountain, straight line, 20 miles. That's what we're looking at in terms of a distance that he's going to be going from fleeing Saul to fleeing into Gath. That's a short period of time, but you know, in those days, it would have taken at least a day to travel, maybe a little bit more. It's not flat, it's hilly, got to cross several hills, maybe a mountain or so. And so maybe you've got a day and a half journey trying to get over to a place of safety only to find out you're not safe there. So now he's going to be on the move again. So where's he going to go? He's going to go from Gath to Adullam. Where is Adullam? Well, if you look at the green arrow, now you see where it is. It's about 10 miles away. So it's like halfway between here and Six Flags Magic Mountain. Well, he's not going to be safe there either. And so God is going, he's going to move himself again. Where's he going to go? Well, he's going to go from Adullam to Moab. Where's Moab? Look for the yellow arrow this time. It's over here on the other side of the Dead Sea. And if you take a journey from Adullam into uh, Moab, straight line about 50 miles. Well, can we relate to 50 miles? Well, you know how far it is from uh, Grace Church down to Disneyland? It's 43 miles. So it's a little bit beyond Disneyland. It's going a little bit further. It's almost down to Irvine, okay? It's somewhere in between Disneyland and Irvine. And so that would have been his journey. About 50 miles, mountainous desert terrain would have taken him two or three days in order to get over there. That's where he's going to put his family. And he thinks that he and his family are going to be safe. But then Gad the prophet comes and says, David, you got to leave here. I want you to go back, not to the cave of Vadulam, I want you to go to the forest of Hareth. Where is Hareth? Well, I'm taking a best guess based upon what I saw in the commentaries. It's going to be right there in the center. Now, I want you to notice something about this. Another 50-mile journey, at least, By the way, you can't go over the Dead Sea. You can't take a boat because you put a boat in there and it's going to be very unstable because it's going to be riding high in the water. And if you move just a little bit, you're going to capsize. And all of a sudden, because of the salt content in the Dead Sea, it's going to be a very unpleasant and uncomfortable experience. So they have to walk down around the Dead Sea. They can't go north because they'll go right by Saul. They'll pass within a few miles of Saul and that will be a a deadly experience for them. So they have to go south around the Dead Sea into the area of Moab. And so we're not looking at 50 miles. We're probably looking at 60, 70 miles. You got a two or three day journey. And David, while he's young and 24, he can make this journey, but his parents aren't doing so well. They're older, and so they got to go really slow. Now they've got to go back to the forest of Harath. But look at where it is. It's dead center of a problem. You got enemies on the north, that's Saul. You got enemies over to the west of you, that's the Philistines. And you really have enemies over here on the east, the Moabites. Even though his family is safely there, when David takes control, he's going to be fighting not only the Philistines, but he's going to be fighting the Moabites as well. David is dead center in the will of God, but he's dead center in uh, trouble. It's like he's a bullseye there in Harath. This is the point we need to keep in mind as we look at Psalm 57. He thinks he's going to be safe On the periphery, God says, no, no, you're going to be safe in the center as the bullseye of trouble. And you may only have 400 men, but you know what? You can't rely on them. You need to be relying on me. That's the setting for Psalm 57. We keep this in mind, then we can appreciate, we can understand what David is saying in Psalm 57. And so now with that as an introduction, and it has taken me a little while, to get there, and now I've only got 20 minutes, but you think, oh wow, 20 minutes, how can we go in depth into Psalm 57? Well, with the background that we have, I think it's just gonna come alive. Think about David being in trouble as a 24 year old. He doesn't have the experience of life, he has a few victories under his belt in battle. He's got the adulation of some men, not only those who are friendly, but enemies, but he is really largely an inexperienced man trying to cope with life and death in a deadly situation. And that leads us then into Psalm 57. And let me get to Psalm 57 and then we can begin. It says in Psalm 57.1, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. David's dealing with uncertainty in his own life right now. And yet he starts out what we think is a strong statement. But when you look at this phrase in the Hebrew, it's really a plea. The plea is better translated, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. He doesn't say this just once, but he says it twice. It shows the seriousness of his own heart in the dilemma that he's in. He's looking at the situation and he's going, this is an untenable situation. I cannot protect myself. These 400 men are not going to protect me. I've got to go to a higher source, a higher authority. I've got to go to God. He's pleading with God, be gracious to me. And so we're looking at his thinking and he's seeing where he's starting out, how he's going. And by the way, he's singing this according to the superscript, according to a very interesting tune. It's called the tune of Do Not Destroy. And this Do Not Destroy theme is in not only Psalm 57, but it's in Psalm 58 and Psalm 59. And it must have been a catchy tune in the day, and we don't know where it's coming from. Most of the commentators have said, well, if you look at Isaiah 65, 8, you can get a hint as to what might be uh, uh, going on. Others would say Deuteronomy nine twenty-six. But in both of these situations, you just find the phrase, do not destroy. But you've got to look at the context in which do not destroy is found. And in both contexts, it's interesting to find that God wants to do some damage to the people who are not following His way. And the response then of Moses and Deuteronomy and the prophet Isaiah is, well, there's still some good left in here. Try and Let's, let's, let's save this and let's try and salvage the situation. And that's what's going on here as we're starting to sing fall. Uh, David's starting to sing Psalm 57. We can salvage the situation. God, you can salvage this situa- Excuse me, situation. We're going to, I should have gone to this. We should have looked at the psalm as two parts, part one and part two. Part one is going to be the first six verses. And we're going to see David's confidence in spite of his situation. And part two is going to be verses 7 through 11. And that's going to be his praise in the midst of the situation. These two parts. And so we're going to look at part one very quickly. And we've already started looking at that. His confidence in spite of the situation. And so here he is in verse 1, David waking up in the midst of his fear, and he says, I'm going to decide to trust God. And he does that by saying, be gracious to me or take pity on me, O God. But it's interesting to see the way this works out. Because when we look in verse 1, at the second part of verse 1, he says, for my soul takes refuge in you. He's saying the beginning place for his confidence is not in his own strength and in his ability to control the circumstance. No, he's going to go back onto the inside of him, into his heart, actually into his mind. And he's going to make the decision. He's going to decide that he's going to put his confidence in God and not in the resources that he has in the physical. And so then he goes on in verse, the rest of verse 1 and 2, and he's going to express this with his mouth. Here he is, be gracious to me, be gracious to me. He says, I'll cry to God most high, to God, who accomplishes all things for me, now remember who is in the audience when he 's speaking out loud? These 400 men, these disenfranchised, these malcontents who are surrounding him, who really aren 't His friends at this point, they're part of what He is going to do. They're going to say, "Well, look at you, lead us in this situation, but that leadership is only going to go so far. it 's going to be until they lose confidence in Him. And so he can't put confidence in them just as they are not putting confidence in him. But now he's going to look to God and he's going to say, God, you've got to be my confidence. I'm in the middle of nowhere right now surrounded by enemies. You are the only confidence that I can have in this situation. And it starts here on the inside and then it's going to work on expressing it outwardly to those around him, even those who don't have full confidence in himself. And then he goes on, in uh, saying, God is going to be my protector. He will personally be involved with me on the earth. Look at what he says in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. And then there's this little word, selah, in some of your Bibles. We don't know what that means, but it seems to be just a statement telling those who are reading the psalm to stop and think about what has just been said. And then he goes on and he says, God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. He's going to be, that is, God is going to be faithful and keep His covenant with me. I think it's really important to look at that word, loving kindness, in the Hebrew. Because it's a word that describes the covenant promise of God toward His people. This is the kind of word that is used to describe God's covenant to protect Israel. And in this particular situation, it's going to be used by uh, David to remind himself of a covenant that God has made with him. What is God's covenant to David? God has said, you're going to be king. I've anointed you as a little 13 to 15 or 17-year-old. One day you're going to be king. David is looking at his circumstances and he's going, how can the promise of God come true when I am in a dangerous situation where my life is threatened, where I don't really have assurance that I'm going to get out of this situation? And yet he's going to go back to a promise that God made. You know, we can identify with David in this situation. None of us has been promised to be the king of Israel like David was. But God has given us a promise, hasn't he? He's promised through his son belief in the work of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that he will deliver us from the future wrath. That's 1 Thessalonians 1 9 and First Thessalonians 5.10. It talks about, Paul talks about a salvation that is promised to us that is not right now personally experienced because we're not in divine wrath. We're not in Revelation 6 through 19. We're waiting for that to happen. We're also not in the eternal category of wrath yet, which is something that's yet to be in the future. Some of us are closer to that experience, passing into the presence of God than others, but The promise that we live for is that God is not going to put us into the tribulation in Revelation 6 through 19, and he's not going to depart from us and leave us in an eternal situation where there is no hope. We've got a covenant relationship with God right now. In the same way, in many ways that David had that covenant promise that was given to him to be the king in the future. God's going to be faithful, and he's going to keep his covenant with me. But then, this is where David shows his humanity. Because when we get to the first three verses, a lot of us are probably saying, you know, that's not how I handle the situation. I don't go to God and say, I'm going to put my confidence in you. I think we can identify more with verse 4. Because now, he gets his eyes off of God and he looks at his situation. He says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. When he says he lies down, he's saying, I go to sleep with a bunch of lions. Well, when you think about a lion, you think of something that's fierce, don't you? But you know, the only time you need to fear a lion is when it stops roaring. When you hear a lion, that's scary. But it's nothing to be afraid of. Because what that lion is doing is announcing his presence and you know where he is. The real problem is when that lion ceases to roar now you don't know where he is now you feel that you're in great danger just look at the picture that is going on when david lays down to go to sleep he's surrounded by 400 lions he doesn't know if they're friend or foe at this point they're with him for right now but that could go up and smoke at any time where does his confidence really need to be not in the 400 men against tens or hundreds of thousands but in god himself but then he wakes up real quickly in verse 5 And he says, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. He gets his eyes focused upstairs again. God is my deliverer. And yet, then he shows his humanity again in verse 6. He goes back to despair. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit for me. They themselves have fallen into it. Salah. Think about this. Here is David. And he's looking at despair exaltation despair exaltation he's in the midst of this confliction that's going on and is there real peace that's going on in his heart well at least in verse 6 he's not ending in a peaceful way he's looking at his situation and he's going this is not a pleasant situation boy i want to trust god and i think this is where we can all relate to david at this point yeah i want to trust god but he's looking at the circumstance and he's going "Mm, i'm not so sure that leads us into part two as we begin to uh, uh, wind ourselves down. David at this point in the first six verses is struggling to keep his trust in his unseen God and in the promises in the midst of a desperate reality. But he doesn't end there. He's going to take us to another level because now here's part two of the psalm. He's going to praise God in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of his situation. And I think this is where we kind of tend to uh, fall off, don't you think? We look at our situation, we stay looking at our situation, and that situation is bad, and it's hard to see God in that situation. But here is 24-year-old David changing the way that he is going to look at his situation. Look at what it says. He's going to start out, and he's going to say his mind and emotions can be vacillating, which we see in verse 6, between trust and despair, but he's going to choose to trust God. So in verse 7, he's going to commit himself to remain focused on Yahweh's strength and promises that were given to him in the past. He says, My heart is steadfast, my God. My heart is steadfast. So we begin this second part of the psalm. He's beginning the same way that he did in the first part. He's repeating himself. Before it was, Take pity on me, God, take pity on me. Now he's saying, My heart is going to be steadfast. Yes, it's going to be steadfast. I'm not going to look at the circumstances. I'm not going to look at my situation. I'm going to look at God himself. He's going to be my strength. He's got to come to my aid. I've got to trust in him because I can't rely on myself in this situation. I may have the magic sword of Goliath, but what's that going to be against all the rest of these enemies that are surrounding me? And so he goes on in verse 8, and he gives himself a pep talk to act. He says, awake, my glory. And when you look at that phrase in the Hebrew, it's awake, my soul. He's talking to himself at this point. He's giving himself the pep talk that he needs to be able to face the situation and the reality that this is out of his control. It's in God's control. It's in God's hand. It has to be. I mean, after all, when you look at what God has done, David, acting in his own wisdom, moved himself from Gibeah to Gath over to Moab, thinking that he would be safe in any of those places. And he settled in in Moab, and now God is sending a prophet, Gad, and he says, nope. I want you in the middle of the trouble. I want you to be there surrounded by enemies, and I want you to see me act on your behalf. And you know what? This is important for a 19-year-old kid, actually 24-year-old kid, as he's looking at the situation, as he's being prepared to be the next king of Israel. And so he says, Awake, my glory. Awake, my soul. Giving himself the pep talk. And then he says, Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Here he's saying, you know what? I'm going to start early in the morning getting up and giving my verbal affirmation that God is in control and He is going to protect me. And then he goes on in verse 8 and 9 to say he's going to make a personal commitment to outwardly proclaim to others his trust in Yahweh and God's care. And here we go. He says in verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Adonai, among the peoples, I will sing praises to you among the nations. You know, we've got to think about his situation and think who he's speaking to because who's his audience at this point? It's the 400. The 400 who say, yeah, I'm on your side, but they're not really there all the way. They're going to be fickle for the next several years. Yeah, they'll put their trust as long as things are going well. David can't rely on that, though. He has to rely only on Yahweh. He has to rely only on the promises that God has given to him. And there's only been one promise given to him at this point. You will be king. 24-year-old who says, God is going to make me king. Doesn't look like it right now, but I've got to put my confidence in him. And now he's going to wind down the rest of this psalm, beginning in verse 10 and 11. And it's kind of interesting to me that this is a short psalm and I like that it's purposefully short because it doesn't dwell on his despair even though he has talked about being in despair on at least two occasions in the first half of the psalm. Now he's going to wind it down and he's going to proclaim his strength and his confidence in God. And so in verse 10, he says, instead of looking at my situation, I'm going to focus on Yahweh and his promises. And he does this in an interesting way. He says, for your loving kindness is great, to the heavens, What's he doing? He's going back to verse 3 and he's looking at the original promise, the covenantal promise of God for him to be king. And he says, I'm going to trust God that that's going to be a reality according to God's timing and God's strength. He says, for your loving kindness is great in the heavens. It's already settled where God is. It's not settled here on earth yet. I can't see it. I'm still years away from seeing the reality of that. But in the meantime, I'm going to trust God. And then he goes on in verse 11, he's going to complete the psalm by expressing his desire for God's glory to be on display in this situation. He says, be exalted among the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above the earth. He says, when we just look at my situation right now, this is not a promising situation, but you know what? What you're doing in heaven, that is where everything is taking place. And if you're going to bring it down here, you're going to be on display By the way, I put my confidence in you and let you handle the situation. I think there's primarily one thought that I'd like you to think about as we close down our time in Psalm 57 today. I think we need to have you ask, how are you handling the turmoil in the world around you? This is what I ask the Slavic people to think about as I've preached this over the last six months in the Slavic world. Because these people are coming out of a situation, especially Ukrainians, settling in other countries of Europe. They're thinking about, what's my life going to look like? How is God going to take care of me? And Psalm 57 is the answer to that. Put your confidence in God when everything else around you is falling apart. But let's get it more personal, not just in a macro view. Let's look in a micro view. How are you handling the turmoil in your life right now? Are you stopping to think, you know, God is in control? He's a sovereign God. You know, if we look at what God did to David, he sovereignly moved David out of Moab into the center of all the problems in the forests of Horeth. He said, I want you there. That's where I'm going to be on display in the way that you handle this situation, trusting me. And what is David doing? He's trusting God and he's expressing verbally his confidence in God you know, if we could bring it into a New Testament setting, I'd say, will you develop a Romans 8.28 mentality? What does Romans 8.28 say? You've probably all memorized like I do. I don't trust my my memory when I'm preaching, so I like to go straight to the Word. But in Romans 8.28, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Was David called? to be the king of Israel? Yes, he was. Did God call him and put him in a dangerous situation for God's glory? Yes, he did. Do we see David glorying in this situation on his own? No, we don't. But God is going to be on display, and that's what Psalm 57 is. God is on display in David's life during a time of turmoil and tribulation for him. Little 24-year-old, I wish... At 24, i had had this kind of confidence. I mean, I wish at 30, I'd had this kind of confidence. I'm a little bit older than 30. I wish at 35, I had had this kind of confidence. David had this kind of confidence at age 24. And it's recorded here in Psalm 57 for us to look at and for us to think about. And instead of looking at our circumstances and our situation and being in despair, it's time for us to look upward. Say, God has made some promises. These may be bad circumstances here on the earth, but His promise is, in eternity, I won't have any more problems. All I need to do is survive right now. And God is going to take care of me because all things work together for good, for them that love God and are called according to His purpose. So when we think about Romans 28, let's think about Psalm 57. And if we think about Psalm 57, let's think about Romans 828 but when we leave here today we need to look at our situation and if you came here today with despair and hopelessness in your own thinking about your situation it's time to develop a new perspective put your confidence in God realize that he has you where he wants you to be no matter how bad the situation is because he wants to glorify himself in your situation let's pray Father, thank you for the privilege we've had to look into your word and thank you for all the trials that you put into David's life and how you use that to shape him and mold him. It took while. It took 15 years from the time he was anointed to the time he was king to be developed into the man who would lead Israel through all these tribulations. But as we look at our own life and we look at the, tr- the trials, the struggles that we have, help us to realize that you're using that to shape our character, to bring you glory in display in our lives in this world before others, not only among believers, but among non-believers as well. Help us not to fail that test and help us to have this attitude of confidence in you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen.